We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. You're going to wonder where I'm going with it. I'm going to do something kind of special for you this morning, and there's a reason, a very pragmatic reason. So you stick with me, and I'll show you what we're about to do and why we're going to do it. Uh, you may have noticed in the last few weeks, that, uh, or maybe a month or so, that there's kind of a crackling that comes over the... Uh, the, uh, what do you call this stuff? Electricity, you know, the headset and all that. And it's because our sound equipment is about 20 years old and our lights are about 20 years old and that's about when they start giving out. And so it's starting to wear out and our stuff doesn't merely wear out, it's obsolete because technology has changed so much that you can't get the parts anymore. And that's why uh, like Preston Fuquay and uh, uh, little Nate Woodall have done such a job in patching this thing together and, and keeping things going because sometimes it'll kind of break down. And so we're going to replace here in a little bit what every church has to do. About every 20 years, we're going to replace our sound equipment and the lights and uh, some other things. And we're not just going to replace them, but we're going to do some remodeling. And it's because whenever you uh, change out your lights and your sound, it has to, ex to fit the existing physical structure. And so we're gonna alter the physical structure somewhat, and let me tell you why. Uh, we're going to bring this stage out about 10 feet, a little farther. So if Steve, Rosie, I'm sorry, but uh, y'all, so that we'll just, I'll come out 10 feet and we'll just be all closer. And the reason we're going to do it is we want to have a place. This choir has sung for since 2006, and uh, they don't have a place to stand. Now, when we started the choir, they were, many of them were about 50 years old. Well, now they're 70, okay? And standing that long, uh, hamstrings, gluteals, you know what I'm talking about. They start cramping up on you, but we wanted to give them a place to sit. And so we're going to have to bring the stage out. And we'll also go from a choir. I asked Kendall, I said, how many people are usually in a choir? He said, usually about 90. I said, how many could we put in it if they were all the way surround sound all the way around, that there was a choir loft, they call it. He said, it'd be about 150 people. And so, and another thing is we can't mic the choir completely because they're close enough to the orchestra that the two sounds would blend in and you would be overpowered by the drums and the horns. And so you don't mic it quite like you could. And so um, another reason is this is going to give us room to do what I know is Kendall's ultimate dream. You know, when we brought Kendall on to be our worship leader, we didn't say anything to him about kids. But he just has a passion for what you saw up here. From the time they're little bitty kids to the time they're older kids to the time they're junior high kids to the time they're high school kids of having Denton Bible choirs and the, and the folks that lead them. And so he has always dreamed of being able to have all of our ancient and dying, that's us, okay, up here in the choir, but then to have little bitty kids, older kids, high school kids, all singing together with us as the body of Christ. And so that's why we're going we're gonna to need a little bit bigger stage 
We, we built the structure of this church before we brought on the uh, professionals as to how it worked. And so we kind of put the cart before, is that what they say? Yeah. And so we're going to remodel this. And uh, it's also, you may have found this a little bit hard to see out there. Um, we need to go to LED. Does anybody know what that means? Okay, we need to go to LED lighting. You know, the place that I work out at, I, I like to get on the treadmill and read if I can, but I can't because I can't see unless I'm down like this with glasses and you can't do that and run as fast as I run. <laughs> you know, okay. And so I can't see it. Well, they put in LED lighting and now I can see it without anything. So I don't know what it is, but uh, it gives sight to the blind. All right. And so we're going to change out the lighting. And um, sometimes, uh, Preston said, when my voice goes down low, when I get intense, I don't scream. I get kind of low out here. And sometimes you can't hear it. And so we're going to tweak that. And so, uh, bottom line, for the maximum sound, light, artistic quality we can have, we are not merely going to replace where we're going to do some remodeling. What's going to be the cost? About $8 million. Close the doors, okay? <laughs> now you say, that's a lot of money. Well, no, we're, we're a big church. We're a lot of people. And so we can get a lot of money together. This is the fourth most expensive thing we've ever done. This building costs $20 million. Student ministries cost $10 million. Uh, the old building we were in cost $9 million. And so this, we, we can do this. And the way that we do it, at Denton Bible, if you've been here a while, we do what's called a heave-ho. It's a, the most primitive method of raising money is we all wait until a certain time. And then for about three weeks, we all together give over and above what we do. Some guys have a lot of money. Some guys hand them out. But we all do what we can. And we take that money and we build with it. Now, we get on a line of credit generally that, so that we can just keep continually building. And then we just pay it as we go from the heave hose because the, the less time you take, the less amount of money you spend for rising costs. And so that's what we've done. This will be the fourth time, and it's worth perfect. And so we use a very uh, flashy means of raising money. We get ice chests, okay, that cost like a dollar and 50 cents a piece. It's ice chests for cold cash, okay? And you just put it, we've built every time with this. We just put ice chests, and then on that Sunday, we just say this Sunday, the next two, all will all heave ho, and we all give, take what we have, go spend it, and God has taken care of us, and we've never had to go into, into debt doing this. And so, that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, you might say, boy, isn't this kind of a hard time to be building something for $8 million? We have never, ever done anything that we had to get money together to do it, that it wasn't at a bad time. It's almost like Israel getting out of Egypt, there's a Red Sea in front of you, and God makes you trust him. Then going into the land, there is a Jordan River at flood stage, so you have to trust him. And there's always Philistines in the land, and they're like, you got to trust him. So God has always made sure that he didn't make it too easy for us. Uh, the Bible says that uh, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. You can't give a kid too much too quick. Same way with a Christian. you got to make them struggle. And so this is the way we're going to do it. And if we have to cut Kendall's salary, whatever we got to do. But we'll find a way. Get in there. Uh, but even though we're going to do this, this is not just for the pragmatics 
of sight and sound and sound quality and music. It's theological. Now, what you've heard up to now, in a sense, has been a commercial. All right. Let me give you the theology now behind what we're doing. Um, it's because of who we are as Christians, as evangelical fundamental Christians in the 21st century that we do this. Art and architecture both speak. Man is an artistic, sensuous creature that lets knows, let it be known, lets itself be known, and how it feels through singing, through art, through architecture. Whenever you're alone and there's no one around and you got a pen, what do you start doing? You start doodling or writing. Uh, if a kid is alone by himself for any amount of time, he'll burn down the building, all right? He just gets itchy. That's the way that we are. As far as you go back in the study of man, you always found art, architecture, and some kind of music. Always. Because that's the man is. The only way that you can be, you know, cultures that just build little cubicles for everybody to live in, those are the, the commies and the atheists where you lose your creativity. Christians have always, and people that believe in a true God have always been a people that express itself through art and through architecture, because that's the way that God is. Art is from God because beauty is from God. The word art is from the word aretas, that is the chief God among the Greeks, Ares. You ever heard of Mars Hill, the Areopagus, Mars Hill? Ares means is something that is excellence in the Greek culture. Aretas was that which was the best. And we shorten that aretas to become the word art because it's doing something the best. How many of you would like to volunteer to be a Sunday morning solo? Anyone? Not in a hundred years. Because what's the term? We're no good. Okay. <laughs> we don't sing well enough for anybody to listen to. These guys do. And so we put our best foot forward out there. Uh, art is from God, beauty is from God, and man is a sensory being, always seeks after that which is artistic. The Bible says of the Garden of Eden that the trees were there that were good for food and a delight to the eyes. They were beautiful. Um, in Job, it says that the creation, the sons of God, the angels sang for joy. You see singing before you see speaking in the Bible. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through his workmanship, so that man is without excuse. The beauty of the creation is because of the nature of God. That is why getting to heaven is so phenomenal, to trace back into eternity the source of everything that is beautiful and poetical and loving and creative and magnificent, you get back to the, to the mouth of the river. That's why the Bible ends with this phrase, and they shall see his face. He's the height of beauty. And it's why whenever you're reading through your Bible and you get to Exodus and you get into the temple or tabernacle, it gets kind of tedious because Moses makes no decisions on what's it going to look like. No, it's what God tells him. 
When you get about to the temple in the book of uh, 1 Kings and about chapter 8 and 9, it gets tedious because God goes into such length as to what he wants his house to look like. Any of you guys, you ever built a house and you said to your wife, just check back here in about nine months and I'll show you what it's going to be. No, that'll get you killed. All right. She's got colors and structure and fabric and height and angles just like she wants it. Okay. And so that's the way we are. We're expressive in how we dress and how we do everything that we do. We're artistic because that's the way that God is. The book of Hebrews says that the temple was a, a, um, a shadow, a copy, and a pattern of the heavenlies. That it was what God wanted you to see when you looked at it. The design was God. The motive was his redemption. The materials you had was because of the bounty and the booty of uh, Egypt when you left. Even the guy that built it, Moses had a guy named Bezalel, that the first time in the Bible the term filled with the Spirit is used, it's about that guy. It says God filled him with the Spirit of wisdom and every sort of craft. If you were going to knit it, to weave it, to do metallurgy, to do drawing, to do anything, this guy was the ultimate artist, Bezalel, that God used to do that. And so, whether it's the tabernacle, 1500, the temple, 1000, uh, the rebuilt temple, 500, it's always a thing of great beauty because it shows who God is. And the temple, there were Levitical choirs that were trained, that had instruments crafted and ordered by David, that he broke the priesthood up into 24 different orders. So you had singing in the temple 24-7, always, FM, all right? It was always there. That's why in the uh, Psalms of Ascent, when you would go up to Jerusalem and then leave, Psalms 120 through 134, Psalm 134 says, you who serve God by night, worship him. Those were the Levites that at 2 a.m. were doing their singing. And so that's the way that God is. Now, that's why it has been said that if you want to look at the history of the church, you don't necessarily look at what the church's creeds are. You look at how they worship. Because that's where what you are comes out, is in the art. And so the first three centuries of Christianity, uh, we had no church buildings because they would have been seen as uh, the Romans were always sensitive to these Christians beginning a new culture. The Christians wouldn't go to the gladiatorial games. They would not go to the, to, into prostitutes. They would not throw out their girls who were born because they weren't worth enough. They would bury the, the dead, not only their own, but others. They would not go to a... Uh, uh, a hospital that was dedicated to Escalapius, the serpent god of healing. There were things they wouldn't do. And so they, the Christians knew that if we build our own facility over here, we're going to be accused of the very thing that we're being accused of. And that's being separatistic. And so the Christians just met in homes because the uh, churches, if they had built them, would have been burned down and destroyed.
So they didn't. About the fourth century, Constantine becomes a Christian. Then a guy named Theodosius and Christianity becomes legal and then it becomes the only religion. And church and state now came together and what would become the dark in the Middle Ages. And uh, churches now had buildings. You know what they look like? Everything else. They were as Roman basilicas. Thick walls, no windows, heavy roofs, low ceilings. And they did that because they wanted everybody to say, these guys are part of us. They have not withdrawn from society. They're good Romans and they're good citizens. And so the church buildings looked like the Roman buildings. Uh, and it was a statement. We're not secretive. We're not devious. We're not withdrawn. We're not dangerous. When the Middle Ages came, though, and now you had Rome had fallen and the Gothic tribes, the Germanic tribes, filled in what would become modern Europe. That's what most of y'all are. If you are blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white, and you can't jump, all right, that's pretty much your Germanic origins, okay. And so they all came in, and the name of the uh, buildings were called Gothic, because they were Goths, they were Germans, and Frenchmen like that. And so their buildings became Gothic architecture. It was a break from Rome. It was their own architecture. And you saw the most incredible expressions of theology in the history of man. Gothic architecture was where they got to where they would build thinner walls so you could have what were called windows. And you could have not just glass, but stained glass. And the stained glass would depict biblical scenes of the Annunciation to Mary, the birth of Christ, His atonement. And so light, they had the church built in such a way that the light would catch it and it would fill the church with light. Uh, it would be built with a cross like that you would have a go out wide, then you would go up long, and it would end in the communion table to bring you into the presence of God. You, it would echo. The acoustics were such that when you walked in, you would instinctively lower your voice. Uh, the church as it went up did not just have artistry, it had figures you would have one of the devil being destroyed by Michael the archangel and cast into hell with his demons. You would have uh, the, the wise men. You would have the 12 tribes. You would have the 12 apostles. It was, it was structure. It was uh, out wide. They would, they would keep it from falling in by having flying buttresses that would hold it up, and it looked like wings. It would go wide and get more slender, until it would rise up, the figures would be elongated. So it was like everything was rising up to heaven. And so when you walked into those churches, incidentally, the uh, church at Strasbourg was 40 stories high. The one at Chartres was 30, a 30-story building. That's how big it was. It would take you a lifetime and another generation to build it. It was your point of pride. And it was where, according to the theology of their day, that you met God at the Mass and you received grace. Another sermon for another day. But nonetheless, that's how they felt 
And this was where God and man came together. As a matter of fact, in France, over a hundred year period, there were 500 Gothic structures built. And so it was man expressing what he felt about God. There's a quote by a fellow from uh, uh, the abbot of St. Denis, and he said this, I seem to find myself, as it were, in some strange part of the universe, which was neither holy of the baseness of earth, nor holy of the serenity of heaven. But by the grace of God, I seemed lifted up in a mystic manner from this lower towards the upper sphere. Now that's the way you want people to feel when they come to church. I am coming into the presence of God. As a matter of fact, as the architecture moved north among the uh, Russians, when you think of a Russian church, what do you think of? You think of the roof. It goes up there. They're called onions, onion tops. You know what that is? It's not to represent an onion. No. It's as if the church is being held by a thread invisibly from heaven. And like heaven is being lowered down to earth. And that is where men and God come together. Not bad for a bunch of Russians, you know. But that's how they felt about it. Uh, that's why they called their largest church Hagia Sophia, the house of wisdom, or the, hol the, the holiness of wisdom, Hagia Sophia. Here is holy knowledge that you find. Uh, the building soared. The figures were elongated. Stained glass gave permanent beauty. The problem was they got into building and they lost meaning. They didn't have Bibles that they all read. Only the priests would read the Bibles. And after a while, that was your means of earning your way to God. They didn't talk about a communion table. They talked about a communion altar because Christ died every Sunday. So they felt. And the priest stood in front of the communion altar. You could not come to the altar. He would come for you. It's called sacerdotalism. He would drink the wine. He would eat. And then you would file by. And he would put it on your tongue. Because they believed in transubstantiation. It changed substance into the body of Christ. And so as you would partake of that every Sunday, you would partake of grace. That wouldn't take you to heaven, but it would shorten your time in purgatory where you would burn for the insincere repentance you had felt over your sins. Is that biblical? No, that is called balona ai. Okay. Yeah, they got off bad. Okay. We had a period from the early 16th century on. What's that period called? I'll give you a hint. It's where it tried to reform. What do we call it? The Reformation. They said, no, no. And you had the Reformation. Catholics, Protestants went to war. They had what was called the Peace of Augsburg because so many were killed. A fourth of European men were, were killed. It was said that the 30 years war was stopped by mothers who said, we gave you our husbands, we gave you our kids, and now you want our grandkids. And a bunch of mad women made the politicians say, no, we agree with you. We won't do it no more. And so they made a decree. It said, he that has the region has the religion. You know, of the 250 some odd principalities of Germany, if you were a Lutheran, if you were a Catholic, 
If you were a reform guy, you made the call in Sweden and Switzerland, the Netherlands, wherever you made the call and everybody had to become what you were. There was no religious freedom, except you could now choose as to whether you were going to get up and move and be Catholic or reformed or, or Anglican or, uh, what's the other one? I forget. Or Orthodox. You could go to Greece and be Orthodox. Or rather to Constantinople. So, as a result, you didn't build churches in the Reformation. You moved into the previous existing churches and you took them over. What the reformers would do is they took the communion altar and they changed it. It's a communion table. Christ is not dying. He's done died. Amen. And he doesn't have to die again. Now, and we're going to move the priest behind him and we're not going to call him a priest anymore. We're going to call him a preacher. We're going to get him a wife, whether he likes it or not. Okay? And you are now invited, all of you, to come. And we will have a communion of both sorts. You can take the wine and the bread. And he's not going to do it for you. We're going back to the Bible. We're going to reform and go back to the Bible. And so fresh winds blew. And so they would just take over. As a matter of fact, in a lot of Catholic churches, they had grating, G-R-A-T-I-N-G, in front of the, the uh, pulpit area to keep everybody back. You couldn't come through it. And the reformers cut it off. And you can still go to a lot of reformed churches today and see the holes that they had to cut off to say to everybody, come, come. Aren't you glad yeah. And uh, they now did something new. The center became not the communion table simply. It became the pulpit. And you could now preach the Bible. And you could preach in what was called the vulgar tongue, the common tongue. And you could even sing, not Gregorian chants in Latin, you could sing songs of Geneva. Catholics called them the Geneva jigs. All right. You could sing songs about God. Guys could write songs. You ever heard of a guy named Isaac Watts? He was complaining to his father about the, how bad the music was. He said, why don't you write some yourself? He said, I will. He became Isaac Watts. And they wrote, they began to have what were called hymn writers. And everybody could sing them. You didn't simply have a chorale that did chants. Everybody could sing. And they even began to write it in parts. You could have the sopranos, the altos, the altos, uh, yeah. You could have the basses, and now everybody could sing about the goodness of God. And they would elevate that pulpit was 30 feet high, and some of them, because the center was now the Bible. Amen. And you can look at church architecture, at Gothic Reformation architecture. The Puritans wanted to purify everything ecclesiologically. They didn't like Catholicism. They didn't like Anglicanism in England. So they wanted nothing. They weren't going to take over anybody's church. They would simply have rude structures. And everybody would dress bad to the glory of God. All right. And you sat on hard benches. You weren't supposed to feel comfortable. And you would get a Bible lesson for two hours. 
go home for lunch and come back for some more. They had guys that would walk the aisles with a stick. You start nodding off, boom. We're going to bring that in too. As soon as they do this, we're going to bring that in. And so that's Puritan architecture. Uh, the 18th and 19th centuries, everything was rural country. And in America, you had a city square. And then everybody had their farms, but you'd come together at the square. Some guys would be merchants that would live above their blacksmith shop or their haberdashery or whatever. They'd live above it. But uh, on the square, you had architecture. You had three things on every square. You had a courthouse for law. You had a schoolhouse for education. You can't have a Republican democracy with stupid people. Amen? Otherwise, you're going to get, okay? And so you got to educate the people. And then what else had you better have? Not just law, not just education. You better have God. Otherwise, you're going to end up in mass killings. Because if you don't have God, it's worse than being in the jungle. The jungle won't eat you unless they're hungry. Humans will kill you just because they want to kill you. And so, nothing is more satanic than a human without God. And so, they would have churches. Anybody else watch Gunsmoke? Whenever Matt Dillon, and he shoots that guy, okay? Every time he shoots him, look in the background at what the guy, when he dies, what's behind him. It's a church. Because Matt Dillon needed a church 24-7 because he shot people continually, okay? (laughs) And so that's gun smoke. And you know how the churches would build themselves? They would build themselves with uh, pulpits and communion tables, and they would often preach in gowns because the preacher was to disappear. You weren't supposed to see anything but hear his voice from heaven. Judges and preachers had gowns because they were both divine instruments. Ain't that something? That's architecture. That's art. And so all of the churches basically looked the same. Matter of fact, a guy from France named Alexis de Tocqueville, he came here and he said, the thing about America that you're impressed with is every place you look, there are churches. That's how we built. Schools, churches, uh, yeah, courthouses. He said, America is great because America is good. When America is no longer good, America will no longer be great, unquote. I went to Russia one time on a missionary trip, and I was real, for some reason, I just nervous walking around. And I asked why, and the lady that was showing us around said, because there are no churches. The commies took them away. They're museums. There's no churches. There's no crosses. There is no music. And she said, you know how you can tell an American? I said, how's that? They're always laughing. They're lighthearted. We are not lighthearted. We want borscht, vodka, and chess, and depressive novels. And so you get nervous in Russia and China because you do not see the presence of God. 
and you, you get nervous. Who's going to keep them? It would almost be like a culture that has raised an entire generation on atheism. You wonder how violent it could get. I mean, it could get to where you could declare what gender you are. Okay? And now we come to the 20th century. Now you have the Industrial Revolution. From rural to urban to the cities, the factories. Now the churches were not just in the square, they were everywhere. The churches now maintain the tradition. The word traduce means to hand down. And so the churches, no matter where they built in Boston, Chicago, Pennsylvania, Philly, wherever they were, they always had steeples and crosses and pulpits and communion tables and hymns and now what were called hymnals that we could all sing them together and choirs and pastors with gowns and organs and stained glass. A lot of the stained glass now was dedicated to earlier generations of Christians to remember them. How many of y'all went to a church with stained glass dedicated to brothers something another over here so you could remember this guy? And so that was the 20th century. And now we come to the 50s and the 60s. If you felt good by now, let me change this. The 50s and 60s, erosion began. What started with the Enlightenment, where we set aside God and tried to say, maybe we can find that answer. We, the Catholics couldn't do it. The Protestants just killed everybody. Maybe the answer has to be found in man, not God. And you began what was called the Enlightenment. I would call it the darkening. It was the Enlightenment. I think, therefore, I am, I think. How do you know? I don't know. And so we had the enlightenment and it ultimately carried us down to the 60s. The 60s were a tectonic earthquake. Ayn Rand wrote a book called When Atlas Shrugged. That was her view of modernity. What does Atlas have on his back? The world. She called it When Atlas Shrugged. And the world changed. Well, we had the earthquake. What always follows an earthquake? Tsunamis. We've had now about 60 years of tsunamis, of humanism, feminism, of transgenderism, of you name it, of abortion. We've now killed an entire generation. Y'all know that? 60 million is an entire generation are dead. And so you have these earthquakes of man without God. And in this, and from the 60s on, everything from the mid-1800s to the 60s said the same thing, of man without God that is going to bring conclusions about science, Darwin, philosophy, Hegel, economics, Marx, politics, Lenin, uh, man and his psychological upbringing, Freud, the Bible, Schleiermacher and theological liberalism, in every area of art and meaning, you had an atheist stepped in and says, here's what I think, and it got canonized, and it produced the 60s. The mantra of the 60s was, all of these different ideologies I just gave you, from Darwin all the way down to German liberalism, said the old is bad. You gotta get rid of it. 
the new is good. Nietzsche said, the worst thing that ever cursed humanity were the Jews and Jesus because they brought the notion of God that you are now enslaved to. Break free of him. And so that was getting rid of it. Abby Hoffman, anybody remember Abby Hoffman? Don't trust anybody over 30. The old is bad. One communist said his ultimate dream was to hang the last politician on the guts of the last preacher. You get rid of all authority. That was the 20th century. I would like to sing a song from the 20th century's greatest prophet, Bob Dylan. You can imitate Bob Dylan. Anybody can imitate Bob Dylan. You heard this. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land. Don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. So please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. For the times, they are changing. Did y'all catch that? That was our mantra. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land, don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and daughters are beyond your command. How many years must a man turn his head? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. It's coming. The great change, the age of Aquarius. This is the dawning. We ain't done real well in all of our pious, empty, humanistic optimism. The churches now look like the cars. Anybody remember the cars of the 50s? Boy, you never knew what was coming out. They were all counterculture. They all looked like they had wings. They were jet age. We had gone outside this world. Twilight Zone, Star Trek. Our great shows that everybody had to watch. We were now done with this world. We were down into a new one out there. And the churches all tried to no longer look like churches. They got rid of them. The churches looked like Whataburger A-frames. They did. They, theological liberalism left us with the same terms, but they changed the meaning. We had a cross, but it was not an atonement. We had a Jesus, but he was not divine. He died, but it was not redemptive. Uh, We had a Bible, but it was not inerrant. As a matter of fact, they said the Bible recorded man's creation of God. Did y'all hear what I just said? I didn't mispronounce that. That's what they said it was. The Bible begins with with polytheism, goes to henotheism, one chief deity among many, then goes to monotheism, then goes to a savage deity, the Jews, and then to the loving deity of Christ. Man created God, and the Bible shows his idealistic progression to where he is. Isn't that bizarre? That's why Billy Sunday said, if you took hell and turned it upside down, it would say made in Germany. Okay, don't email me. I would never say that. And as a result, our churches now 
got rid of God. And so you would now come and just have a warm time of social function, but you didn't have God. And now we come to the 70s. You had, we went a step further. We no longer had churches that represented truth, but pragmatism, what man needed. I remember I became a Christian in the 70s, and the churches were all over um, personal needs. You want to turn your church into a basketball court after you finish, or to play field hockey, or to eat in. It was called a multi-purpose place. The church was always a sanctuary. It's where the people of God came to worship. We're going to make it now multi-purpose. Then churches went from looking like gyms to the mega church. Seeker sensitive. In a post-Christian culture, how do we get them in? Answer, we become like them. John Hanna of Dallas Seminary, he said the problem happened in the 80s when the church put its finger in the wind. What's the world saying? Then let's change that they won't feel out of place. And you had the emergent church, new, novel, the latest, the dumbing down of Christianity. Uh, the absence now of Bible exposition, the absence of systematic theology, the absence of calling out against sin because certain people didn't believe it. Churches now look like businesses. They look like Raytheon. They look like Texas Instruments. Pastors didn't look like pastors. They look like CEOs. They all look like Pat Riley. Coach of the Lakers, they all were slick. An organization went on steroids. One guy said in America in the 80s, God could have died and nobody would have known it for six months because everything was an was a organizational deal. The 90s, it went to technology. Now it's multi-sites, which aren't church plants. They're just new electrical outlets. Okay? Uh, churches are now having splits over generations. What are we going to do with the 70 to 90-year-olds? What are we going to do with the Gen X and the millennials? The answer Cut the old guys loose. I had somebody say to me that about 35, 30 years ago. We're going to have to cut the old guys loose and go with the young. To which I said, show me. And besides, I'm old. <laughs> All right. Uh, churches now became theaters as opposed to just businesses. That you now had stages for production of light and smoke and bands. The pastor was no longer an expositor. You didn't even need to bring your church, bigger Bible. He was now Tony Robbins, preaching to felt needs, which is okay at times. Uh, speaking about success, the American gospel. Uh, Neo-Pentecostalism fell right in with it. That if you're really holy, you're healthy, you're good looking, and you're rich. The American gospel. There were no organs, no orchestras, no choirs, no pulpits, no hymns, no exposition, no stances, no sin. Music was no longer contemplative. Behold God, 
It was now participatory to get you excited. Something changed. My son, Benjamin, he's a Secret Service agent, and he's got the tact of a gag reflex, okay? That's how subtle he is. And when he just got married early on, they were living down in Austin. And I said to him, probably 25 years ago, I said, hey, y'all found a church? No. You looking for one? No. Were you looking? Yes. You couldn't find one? No. I said, what are they like? He goes, and then Ben starts preaching at me. When are you guys going to learn that you can't compete with Mick Jagger and Madonna? They'll beat you every time in doing a show. The thing you got that nobody got is the Bible and the knowledge of God. Why don't you preach it and try to imitate the monkeys? I don't like it. But you know what? He was right. He was right. And so today, the traditional church is essentially gone. I mean the church that you grew up in. It's gone. Today's leaders are now having to make a decision. Which worldview do we go with? Not do we sing this hymn or that hymn. Do I cut loose the past and say what the guys were saying since the Enlightenment? Away with the old, bring in the new. Will the new work? We don't know. Did the old work? Darn well it worked. But let's get rid of it. Why? Because people don't like it. And so, that's why, you ever see those twilight zones of you go into a town and there's no old guys? Everybody's young, you know, and you're trying to figure out what happened to them. Anybody ever see the show from back in the 70s called Logan's Run? I can't think of a stupider name than Logan. All right. But it's called Logan's Run. Logan, who's Logan? All right. And Logan's Run in his world, Michael York is the guy. It was filmed in Fort Worth. <laughs> okay. In that society, that futuristic society, once you turn 30, they put you to death. It's just the young. Michael York and his girlfriend are both 30. Their time is coming to disappear. And he takes off. Logan's run. He leaves the little place they're in. He emerges at the water gardens of Fort Worth. <laughs> okay. And they go out and in this apocalyptic world that's been destroyed by all the old guys, I guess. He finds Peter Ustinov, Russian actor. And he's this old guy that somehow has survived. And he's living out with a bunch of cats. And they've never seen nothing like him. He's an old guy. Your hair, it's, it's gray. Have you seen my cats? And, and so that's kind of the nature of the movie is we got to get rid of the old guys, all right? You basically got three generations out there. The greatest generation that was my father, the World War II guys, and then those they gave birth to, 
the boomers, us. Greatest generation and boomers are all nostalgic. How many of you are 70 and above? Did you raise your hand? Okay. Our generation is nostalgic because we remember. Can y'all remember? Uh, the old days. We remember the hymns. We remember Lawrence Welk. We remember Perry Como. We remembered Billy Graham and George Bev Shea. And, and uh, we remember the, the great foundations of our faith. My brother Bob would go to the jail and preach. He passed away about four or five years ago. And when he would go and preach, he would carry this big old jam box and he would put on Gaither homecoming hymns. And he would get these guys in the pod at the jail and teach them. And then he would stop and they would say, we're going to have a hymn? He'd say, yeah. And he'd put it on. What a fellowship. What a joy divine leaning on the other. And he would just sit with them and they'd hum. And he said the guys would start crying. Why do you think they would cry? They remembered when mama took them to church. They remembered Christmases and they would start crying because they had lost their way. So you've got nostalgic people. Then you've got our kids, Gen X. They're kind of on the fence like my son. He's seen both. He helped clear the land the summer all center went on. Uh, he was one of the early guys, Benjamin was, at Denton Bible Church. And then he's seen Austin. Okay. He's seen both sides of the fence. He's seen the movement from the old time to the present. And so Gen X is not convinced. They're kind of, which way do I want to go right here? I remember my father and my grandfather. This way, I'm not sure where it leads. We're Hansel and Gretel right here. I'm not sure where this thing is going to lead me. Then you got millennials, my grandkids. They are on an island they technologically, how many of you, when you have problems with your computer, call your grandkids? Yeah, to fix it. Technologically, culturally, how many of you, when you were growing up, when you were young, had to declare what gender you were, what you chose to be, or whether you were a it or a them? Anybody? They do. Uh, spiritually. They have grown up with abortion. They have grown up with homosexuality. They have grown up with sodomy. Before the age of 12, all males have seen oral sex performed somewhere that got to them. And so they are technologically, culturally, spiritually, they are foundlings that have been cast out. And they're not sure. They can't remember good old days but they don't like where they are. They are also uh, skeptical because they have seen the fall of the theaters. They've seen the fall of Hillsong. They've seen the fall of Mars Hill. They've seen the fall of these guys. They're, they're tired of being sold a bill of goods. Every time you look on a computer, on a smartphone, you got some kind of commercial coming your way. They're tired of commercials. 
Howard Hendricks used to say, they are weary of words. Just once they would like to see the real thing. And uh, one guy at the seminary, his name is Spiegel, and he said that a millennial has been raised on Tolkien and or Harry Potter. And both of them have the same idea, that they are people that have roots in ancient mystic beliefs. Where it be spiritualism or witchcraft, Harry Potter, or whether it be nature talking and trees walking and stones singing, stuff like that, of Tolkien. So he said, they are attracted to cultures that go deep, way back in time and are rooted in something beyond them. Uh, and that is why he said, you are seeing with millennials either a punting of the faith and choosing which gender they want, living with their whoever's, or you see them doing an exodus to orthodoxy, to Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, Episcopalianism. They want to go back to something that hypothetically sends its roots back centuries into the past. And that's what they want to find. We want DBC to be a place of final truth. Uh, the tabernacle, when you went to it, the walls were of linen with cherubim woven into them. The blue coverings were over all the implements of the temple, sky blue like heaven. The priest wore a, um, a vest with the people on his chest and the people on his arms, shoulders. There was a particular fragrance, an incense, a, uh, what do you call it? A perfume that the priest would wear. And so you saw something, you heard something, you smelled something of sacrifice and perfume. The base of the perfume was cinnamon, it was sweet. And no one else could make that perfume in those same ingredients. So you, when you went to that temple three times a year for six feasts and a fast, you could smell it, you could hear it, you could see it, you could touch it. You were in God's presence at that. As you went up to it, there were songs that you would sing. Whenever Solomon built the tabernacle, a guy named Hiram, a king, he said, you guys work with wood better than anybody in the world. And they would bring their wood because it was the best. They would bring almug trees from uh, far away from the Tarshish traders. And they were the best. And they made them as the steps of the temple. Solomon says, this is something done for God. It's got to be the best. And that's how the Jew grew up with his imagery of who God was. In the 80s, we built the Summerall Center, and it was pretty Puritan. In the 90s, we built the mill, and we noticed the pendulum swung. I saw it, and all the elders saw it. Something happened. That among my generation, those that are now 40 and 50, we saw a lack of reverence for God. I remember John Clark, my younger son, saying at one service, he said, some guy behind me started cutting his fingernails. And I'm listening to the message. Bing. Bing. Bong. Thumb. Bing. He said, I, I just turned and looked at it. 
He said, I, I wanted to say to him, hey, you going to pull out them big yellers here in a little bit? Start cutting your toes, you know? And so whenever we built the present sanctuary, we tried to bring back a balance. The guy that landscape, the guy that did it, what do you call him? Architect? He said, what are you thinking of, Pastor? I said, here's what I want. I'm thinking of getting out of the church and seeing trees, oaks with roots that have been here and will be here for generations. I'm thinking of a steeple and a cross. I want bells. In the, I would like a hunchback Italian bell ringer. I want an orchestra. I want a choir with a big sound that we can sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Psalms connect you to the Old Testament, hymns with the greatness of our day, and then spiritual songs, what the new guys are singing. Uh, you ever wonder, while well, I'll preach in a suit, unless it's summer, uh, Charles, Kendall, because it's a respect for who we are. We go back to Walford and Criswell and Moody and Hodge and Tennant and Edwards and the Puritans and Luther and Huss and Augustine and Athanasius back to Polycarp, the Twelve, Christ, Moses, God. That's who we want to go back to. Christianity has the philosophic Big Ten that if you have it, you have an imperfectible religion and time stands still, if you have it. If you can have a God who is self-existent, infinite and personal, Trinity. If you can have him as the creator of all by his mere word. If you can have man in the image of God, nothing like him. If you can have an origin of evil, that it's not in nature, it's not in God, that it came and was hoisted by somebody at a point in time, the fall that you have a divine revelation from God where everybody can have access, where the coin of the realm is studying and seeking a book. And it's where you can trace where that book will come from. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, Israel, a chosen nation. Then you can have a person who is a God, man, innocent criminal who dies and lives and can transfer you over 2000 years to an age of grace where you can be saved and that he will come back someday. That's called the Big Ten. We got them. Amen. We're the 27 Yankees. We don't go to other places to try to get what they have. They can't compete with us. We're the best. We're in a place uh, where beliefs are perfect. Time stands still. Y'all remember a movie a few years ago about four disgruntled people that life had not given them what they longed for. And they're all disgruntled. And one of them hears a voice. Ray, build it and they'll come. And then he is led to James Earl Jones, Terrence Mann. He's led to Burt Lancaster, uh, a doctor who never got to play pro ball. And then to a dead guy from the Chicago White Sox, Shoeless Joe Jackson. They had all blown it or lost it. And they would all come together and their dreams would be fulfilled. Any truth now, but it's interesting. What united them, you remember what James Earl Jones said? 
in the deal. He's talking to Kevin Costner. And he says, Ray, we all went through the 60s. We went through the pain of life. And it didn't work out. We're all looking for something that never changed. What is it? Baseball. Salvation by baseball. All right. You got a baseball diamond. 90 feet, 90 feet, 90 feet, 60 feet, 6 inches. Strikes, balls, foul, fair, safe, out. Only the fences change. This is where things don't change. And he said, Ray, people from all over are going to feel that longing. And they're going to want to come here. They're not going to know why. But they're going to sit down and find peace in baseball. What's the name of that movie? Field of Dreams. If there's a place that is perfect, where time stands still and never changes. If only we could find it. Can you sing this? What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace of mind, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Father in heaven, we got the ice chest back there this morning. So those who want, and then next week, those who want, next week, those who want, will take three weeks. And we'll start getting ready that maybe by Easter, they say, we can have a place. I know God, as I'm getting old, and I'm going to go off the scene here, a place that uh, the young can come to like a field of dreams, and say, this is it. This is it. It is a Bible church. And how they preach and how they believe and how they sing from the young to the old, the little guys to the old guys. This is it. Am I in heaven? No, uh, you're in Iowa. Is this heaven? Yeah. This is the route to glory. And so when we're all long gone, might there be a place that we have left for them to have a chance with somebody that will fill this desk with the sacred truth of God. And we'll ask this, Father, in Christ's name and for his sake and his coming. Amen.